Bienvenidos, marhaban, and welcome to the Never Never podcast, exploring the Dresden Files series by Jim Butcher. I'm your host, Christine. I'll be releasing multi-chapter analysis episodes for each book, along with special bonus topic episodes, apparently on no particular schedule. The Never Never podcast may include spoilers from all sources, including the books, short stories, graphic novels, and blog posts, interviews, and panels from the butcher himself. The Dresden Files features mature themes, including sexuality, fantasy violence, and very real violence. Also, I'm terrible at watching my language, so the Never Never podcast is intended for mature audiences, despite having playful, if not childish, tendencies. I missed you guys. Um, so quick story. No shit, there I was. I opened the document last week to finish the last chapter and edit before recording. The 80% completed. It was nowhere to be found. I spent a day hopelessly depressed and another day starting again from scratch, and then I found it. Inexplicable. It was just there. You know, I swear, it, it wasn't before, but there it was, open and minimized. It's like I have file gnomes that steal files to go with the lost socks and lost pens from their rival gnomes. Between that, my car exploding, the election, jury duty, a short round of food poisoning, and the two puppers I found and am still in the process of rehoming. This episode took a minute, so thank you for your patience. Rant over. Here we are now with thoughts on some chapters. So, let's draw our circle and step through the way to the Never Never. Episode 7, My Blood Went Cold. Recorded November 19th, 2020. Covering Stormfront, Book 1, Chapters 15 through 17 in this episode. Murphy sends a uniform to pick up Harry for another heart-stopping murder. Linda Randall is dead, and Murphy found Harry's calling card in her apartment. Secrecy and suspicion drive the two apart. Down in the dumps, Harry gets sidelined by a thug. Again. This time with surely fatal consequences if he doesn't act fast. Good thing he excels at finding lost things. Harry's tracking spell follows his assailant to Marcone's bar-slash-mob business front, and huffs and puffs to an unexpected conclusion. Moody scenes, grim events, a bit more sexism, dramatic tension, overreactions, and minor character packages tied up with string. These are a few of my favorite things. Context. Here we discuss the series' overarching plot, groundwork, character intros, and world-building, as well as any meta-aspects, mythology, callbacks to other books, foreshadowing, and theory. Chapter 15. Two More Broken Hearts. Linda's dead. Jim leads with this, before its place in the chronological events being described, that Linda stood Harry up because she was dead. Then we get the details in passing of how Harry got out of the previous conundrum and how he got to the crime scene. Why Jim chose to not take advantage of the opportunity for a dramatic shock reveal, I'm not sure. Because it would have been shocking had Jim waited until Harry saw the body to reveal that it was Linda. Perhaps he was worried that a casual reader wouldn't remember who she was. Or maybe he thought it might overshadow the important character interaction that follows. If you've got another idea, I'd love to hear it. Please leave it in the comments. So Harry goes from naked, struck-by-lightning wizard to shoddily-dressed police consultant. The toad demon had ransacked Harry's place, 
turning it into de facto laundry day. So Harry shows up to the new Broken Heart murder in a t-shirt, sweatpants, his duster, and a pair of cowboy boots. And oh, by the way, Susan explained the hullabaloo in the street to the cops, the cliffhanger at the end of the last chapter with a strategic, quote, just one of those things, tee hee, unquote. Really? I mean, do I even need to address it? Okay, super quickly. It's presenting women as ineffably cunning in masking the truth by affecting another stereotype, the frivolous dits, and portraying men as gullible enough to fall for it. I won't say that interactions like these have never happened, nor that a similar deception never worked, but it's rather insulting to all involved and a lazy explanation if I ever heard one. All the more disappointing because of the attention Jim usually pays to actions and their consequences. <sighs> this was written and published 20 years ago, plot expediency. This is my big complaint for the episode. Moving on. Jim does keep Susan's character perfectly consistent. She's still a sexy reporter, never daunted by circumstance. She's seemingly unflappable. Like, while the experience was terrifying and literally made her sick, she manages to assimilate it into her reality quickly, skipping denial entirely as she writes for a magic and supernatural focused magazine. This is solid early groundwork for Susan's reckless attitude during future involvement with the supernatural world in Full Moon, Book 2, and Grave Peril, Book 3, and The Red Court of Vampires in particular for another nine books afterward, until death do they part. She doesn't flinch at what exists out there, to her detriment, but that's a ways ahead. So for now, Susan kisses Harry's cheek, pats his bare ass, or other cheek, and hurries off to write her story about the toad demon. At this point in the story, Harry shows up to the crime scene, as previously mentioned, looking decidedly scruffy and unprofessional. Murphy gives Harry a suitable amount of grief for his appearance. Quote, you plan on having King Kong climb your hair? Unquote. Brilliantly efficient characterization also draws attention to Harry's hair being long enough to <clears throat> need a cut. Harry passes the several squad cars and blue lights flashed over the scene in alternating swaths of shadow and cold light." Unquote. I'm sure this is for the mood of the scene, how depressing it will be, but it seems prophetic of where Harry's character goes later in the story to alternating shadow and cold light. Suddenly it just clicks, and Harry is sure that the murderer is using the energy of the storms to accomplish magic above their weight class. For storytelling, it is smart to make one's villain deadly dangerous, a serious threat, but restrict it here to only when there's thunder, bolts of lightning, very, very frightening. They can't power this heavy dark magic on their own. Their tank is too small, so to speak. Now that way, one's protagonist has a chance of beating their antagonist, but it's not a sure thing. Tapping the storms reminds me of other situations where practitioners use ambient energy to hit harder than they could otherwise. We see this in Deadbeat, Book 7, Ghost Story, Book 13, and Battleground, Book 17, off the top of my head. Though sometimes that source of power is taken away just to make things harder for Harry, as Jim is wont to do. Anywho, Harry goes under the yellow tape and into the apartment, which is full of the forensics team. But who on earth has died? This is the point at which Harry chronologically discovers it was Linda Randall. And <laughs> his blood runs cold. Immediately he hides his expression before Murphy can turn to see it. Same MO. Linda had been on her bed, 
freshly bathed, not yet dressed, surrounded by candles, most of them burned down. She'd also been on the phone with 911 when the spell had gone off. This time, it was less spectacularly explosive and more precise, like the murderer is perfecting their technique. Instead of being blown open, there was a hole in her chest. Instead of her heart bursting onto the ceiling, it was lying on the bed near her, crushed. Harry then waxes psychological as he assesses her apartment. Quote, I had to think of her as she sounded on the phone, joking, a quick wit, a sort of sly sensuality in the way she said her words and phrased her sentences, a little hint of insecurity around the edges, vulnerability that magnified the other parts of her personality." Unquote. There were sexy clothes forgotten on the floor next to her bed, the candles, and some grown-up toys. This Harry cannot relate to. He catalogs all of these details dispassionately, perhaps even uncomfortably, to intellectually understand Linda's life, her personality, and her habits. But then, in the kitchen, nearly unused but for a coffee maker, microwave, and some pizza boxes in her trash can, suddenly he can relate. He says it looks very much like his kitchen, and that gets to him and opens up Harry's empathy. Now, despite the sexual focus in Linda's life, when Harry looks down upon, he can suddenly and finally relate to Linda Randall, the human being, my favorite single-serving one-hit wonder character in the whole series. Quote, Here lived someone else who knew that the only thing waiting at home was a sense of loneliness. Sometimes it is comforting. Most often, it isn't. I'll bet Linda would have understood that. Unquote. R.I.P. girl. Next, we have a chilling simile description. Quote, the forensics team was gathered around the bed, concealing whatever was there, like a cluster of buzzards around the exposed head of the outlaws they used to bury up to their necks in the Old West. Unquote. Certainly the seed for the gruesome death at the end of the Camp Kaboom plotline you know, in White Knight, Book 9. The scene is a long one, so I won't quote much of it here, but in short, the buzzards are replaced by a nest of fire ants investigating the orange juice Harry poured over the assailant's unburied head. Quote, the ghoul screamed and screamed, which did not matter to me in the least. Unquote. Right. Back to the horrible murder. Yay. Woman, passionate and conflicted, missing one heart. Murphy and Harry begin to work the scene. Murphy is trying to get a hold of the Becketts, her employers, to try and find some family somewhere to notify of Linda's death. Now we learn many things previously mentioned, and also a vague backstory for Helen and Greg Beckett, white-collar, jet-setting, childless professionals extraordinaire. Here's another emotionally buoyant story for you. So, three years previously, their young daughter, daughter? Daughter, Amanda, was killed in the crossfire of a mob shooting. Marcone consolidating power against a rival crime ring. A stray bullet put the girl in intensive care for weeks before finally dying when taken off life support. This story is filled out further in both Death Masks, Book 5, and White Knight, Book 9. We see both the event, in heartbreaking detail, and the lengths to which Marcone will go to try to set right the tragedy, despite not being the individual who pulled that particular trigger. The forensics team leaves, and Murphy drops a bomb that I was surprised I didn't anticipate when it was presented back in chapter 10. Like, on my first read, I'm surprised I didn't notice. 
she shows Harry a piece of evidence, as of yet, unlabeled, not cataloged, yet. Harry's business card, earlier palmed to Linda discreetly, and now speckled with her blood. What do you want to bet his blood ran cold again? Murphy wants to give Harry a chance to explain, because it's clear she knows he's holding back. It's also clear that she expects, in fact requires him, to give her an explanation, as any friend or honest colleague would. Harry considers giving her a non-answer, like, a lot of people have my card, it's good advertising. Technically truthful, but a sleight-of-hand statement. Instead, he claims to sense that Linda probably has a police record for drugs and solicitation, that she worked for Bianca at the Velvet Room, she was partners and lovers with her co-worker Jennifer Stanton, and if asked yesterday about the murders, she would claim to know nothing. Murphy is furious, slamming him against the doorway. Had Harry shared this premonition, and they both know he's telling her what he found out about Linda and what she told him yesterday, but had he told Murphy yesterday? The police may have been able to make some progress, even apprehend the murderer, and Linda might even be alive right now. Harry can't meet her eyes and says, quote, A lot of people have my card, I said. I put them up all over the place. I don't know how she got it. Unquote. Murphy can't believe Harry would pull this. She's been trusting Harry, and now he's holding out on her, even though he knows that she knows and is angry about it. So she calls him on it, and she tells him that it's her job to follow the evidence, to protect the public, her duty to get a statement from him, if not arrest him, despite their history. She asks Harry to please not force her hand. Harry considers this option, now knowing how important it is to Murphy that Harry not keep some of the puzzle pieces in his pocket. Now, if he comes clean, it will occur to all involved that Linda Randall had a lot of sex with both men and women. So who's to say Harry wasn't a lover of hers, jealous and able to perform the magic in question? That's motive and opportunity. And the details he's keeping to himself wouldn't tell Murphy who done it. Harry's ignorant of the Shadow Man's identity. She would just dig and dig until she came onto the Shadow Man's radar, at which point Murphy would be the next broken heart. Also, some of the details fall under information which would cause the White Council to birth a cow if they learned Harry had divulged to a non-wizard. They might even have Murphy killed to preserve their secrets, again, placing her in danger. He could not, in good conscience, put her in the sights of individuals so much deadlier than even a clever criminal. Harry decides, quote, Sorry, Murph, I said. My voice came out in a rasping whisper. I wish I could help you. I don't know anything useful. Unquote. And this is where the second broken heart tonight occurs. Original meaning, Murphy is deeply hurt, betrayed. But her professionalism takes over, shutting down her emotions almost completely. He goes from Harry, or Dresden, to Mr. Dresden. She calls for her partner, Carmichael, to witness their next exchange and take the evidence bag to be officially logged into evidence. Asking for a witness means she doesn't want to be accused of impropriety if this were to go to trial. Carmichael's face broadcasts Harry's shifting in his mind, quote, from annoying ally 
to suspect, unquote. Harry has been reclassified. Murphy officially asks him, professionally and coldly, to come into the station to answer some questions. Harry thinks again about the White Council convening in less than a full day to likely execute him. He doesn't have time to answer any questions for her. So Harry gives a lame excuse for the evening, and Murphy says fine, but if he doesn't appear by morning, she'll be asking for a warrant. Harry excuses himself, as he's not under arrest, and Murphy does the, and if you are hurting people, I will take you down, understand, thing. Many have questioned Harry's reasoning for not telling her what he knows, especially when he knew it might ruin things between them. This is why. Harry understands the not-a-threat-but-a-promise tone. Still, he can't endanger Murphy even to preserve their friendship. But it doesn't make him feel like less of a pile of shit, so Harry breaks her heart to keep her heart safe. Chapter 16. My hair! Not just my hair. You have to do it like that with the exclamation. My hair! Yeah, anyway. The storm is now over Lake Michigan, and as he walks away from the scene, he finds a phone booth and calls a cab because smartphones and Uber apps were not a thing yet. He laments about the damage his choice to protect Murphy and himself has done. He had just lost the trust and respect of one of the very few he could call friend without it, you know, being weird. His gloomy attitude is parabolically projecting that it could never be mended. And then a pedestrian on the sidewalk punches Harry in the gut. What the fuck? I mean, what are the odds? Meanwhile, Harry is hit again and again. Too out of breath to cast, stunned and dazed, he couldn't act to defend against what happened next. Quote, He grabbed my hair, jerked my head up, and with an audible snip of scissors, cut off a big lock of my hair. Then he let me go. My blood went cold. Unquote. The assailant, the same who had attacked Harry before on his porch, is now walking quickly away. Now this is a sharp, oh shit moment. I mean, probably the best one in the book. And when I first read that paragraph, my heart dropped through my stomach and into the arches of my feet. Two chambers each. Because now the Shadow Men will shortly receive the means of murdering Harry directly, rather than sending demonic assassins. Harry has to act fast. First strategy, stop him and reclaim the hair. He grabs the dude's leg and injures a trick knee. So Harry grabs Gimpy's hair-holding wrist and starts pressing his thumbs as hard as he possibly can into the tendons, trying to make Gimpy let go. Gimpy begins pummeling Harry to make him let go when some passersby decide to come aid, you know, whomever they determine isn't being an asshole. They think Harry is the instigator, so they drag him off. And Gimpy lost some of the hair in the process, but still made away with a goodly amount. And then Harry tells the Samaritans that he has my wallet. Gimpy wearing a suit and Harry in his motley sourced outfit, they thought it unlikely and just let Harry go, retreating to their car, you know, not sure what the right thing to do would be. Now, I thought this seemed such an apt description of what would happen in the real world under these circumstances, that street heroes would only handle so much weird before they raise their hands and exit stage left. Harry struggles to follow, but Gimpy makes it to his car, and then it's hopeless. Harry is injured and panicked. John Marcone's goon has a lock of Harry's hair, which means John Marcone will have it too soon for comfort. He'll give it to his sorcerer, and then Harry's a goner, and he decides he is not going to roll over and take it. 
He has to find them. Find Gimpy, find Marcone, find the sorcerer on Johnny's payroll. Here, I'll quote. No, I thought, not Marcone. That didn't make any sense. Unless it had been Marcone's gang dealing with Three-Eye from the very beginning. If Marcone had a wizard in residence, why would he have tried to bribe me away? Why not just swipe a lock of hair when he sent the thug the first time, and then kill me when I didn't pay attention? Unquote. Maybe Gimpy is a double agent. Whoever works for whom. The Shadow Man only has the power to compete with Harry during the storms, and doesn't have the raw ability at all. Harry has a little time to act, but what to do? He'd need Bob to reverse the tracking spell from him to the hare, and Bob would be gone for almost a whole nother day. And Murphy. She'll never help him nail the bad guys now. Nails! Harry sees the sample of Gimpy's skin and blood under his fingernails. Yes! Forward-facing tracking spell. Harry draws his circle and murmurs some Latin, and then is hot on Gimpy's trail. The cab comes, and off they go. Chapter 17, Gimpy and the Varsity. Now, before we start in, I want to restate some ideas I put forward in episode 2 regarding Marcone. It is a very common construct of storytelling that the endgame is foreshadowed in the very beginning. Now, Marcone is the first antagonist we meet. The tone of their relationship is set at Cold War, with the caveat that one day, Marcone will no longer be the least of available evils, especially in the wake of Battleground. I predict that Marcone will be the final load-bearing boss at the end of this sweeping saga. In rereading this chapter, this time, we'll see if we can anticipate aspects of their ultimate conflict based on the shape of this scene, given the information we have now. Harry's cab pulls up to Marcone's college bar front business, the Varsity. This time of night, it is isolated, and he almost lost the guy. But there's Gimpy's car, and there's Gimpy, sitting with Marcone and the other goons, Hendrix and Spike. Against just Harry, beaten, exhausted, and emotionally drained. But also a wizard, who is, quoted from the previous chapter, mad enough to chew up nails and spit out paper clips. Unquote. He considers something subtle, but it would simply take too much time. Charge his magic accessories and blow the door off its hinges, it is. But of course he does so in a way that protects the other patrons in the bar. He slams against a wall and melts the jukebox, screeching the music to a halt. He pops the light bulbs one by one around the room, and the people inside scream, run out, duck, and then shut up all at once, staring at Harry filling the doorway like he's the big bad wolf. Harry asks for a chat. John! And for me, calling Marcone by his first name is another minor oh shit moment. I mean, I don't even do that, and Marcone isn't real. Marcone is described as not smiling. Hendrix scowls, Spike looks nervous, and Gimpy stares in horror. Marcone is a scary dude. I'm even at this point pre-supernatural world involvement. The disrespect shown in doing violence to the building, but I think more importantly, the familiar request in front of his customers and employees, is something to be dealt with. Marcone comps everyone's bill and pulls a, you don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. Once alone, Harry demands his hair be returned. Marcone has no idea what Harry is talking about. Quote, Beg pardon, Marcone said. His head tilted to one side, and he seemed genuinely puzzled. You heard me, I said. 
This piece of trash of yours, I swung my blasting rod up and pointed it at Gimpy, just jumped me outside a gas station across town and cut off some of my hair. I want it back. I'm not going to go out like Tommy Tom did. Marcone's eyes abruptly shone with a terrible, cold, money-colored anger. He turned his head deliberately to Gimpy, named Lawrence. Gimpy's broad face went a bit more pasty. He blinked a trickle of sweat out of his eyes. Unquote. There is a denial, a demand for evidence. Harry points out the scratches Harry must have left on Gimpy's wrist to have genetic material under his nails to have performed a tracking spell. Gimpy denies it again, trying to explain they were from sex. Then Harry solves this corner of the puzzle out loud. Gimpy is a spy for the three eye suppliers, a rat and a gopher. Exposed, Gimpy panics and draws his gun. Harry pulls up his shield bracelet as Gimpy starts shooting. Hendrix, deceptively quick, moves in front of Marcone like a secret security badass and triple taps Gimpy. Two in the chest, one in the head. Side note, that takes a dedicated amount of practice, hundreds or thousands of hours, and is often taught in urban combat training. There's an unsettling moment. Quote, Gimpy Lawrence had dark eyes like mine. I could see them. His head turned toward me as he lay there on the floor. I saw him blink once, then the lights went out of them, and he was gone." Unquote. So here's the other minor character package. We don't know much about Gimpy Lawrence, but we know he was desperate for money to be betraying his mob boss, and didn't realize he could go to his boss to get it. And we know he lived with pain, as he'd been limping from before Harry hurt his knee. This gives him at least some pathos, rather than being, you know, random goon number two. Again, props, Jim. Harry is shocked. <laughs> One might say his blood ran... Okay, I'll stop. This isn't what Harry wanted. You know, intimidation, dick swinging, maybe. Not death. Marcone broke the silence, indicating that he would have wanted to question him first, that he would have paid him more to stay loyal. Marcone checks Lawrence's wrist and confirms the marks. Then he and Harry establish that Gimpy does not have the hair on him, and it wasn't passed to anyone since he arrived at the bar. The Shadow Man must already have it. Burning down the bar will be a shame. Marcone liked this one. And now, what to do about Harry? Harry, who has chosen his defiant grand entrance to define himself as Marcone's enemy. But thankfully, Marcone need do nothing just yet. Either Harry will get himself killed going after the Shadow Man in an effort to not get killed, or Harry will defeat him in time, giving Marcone the excuse to forgive Harry, because then he'd be showing his loyalty to Marcone in removing a business rival. After all, why waste men and other resources? And all Marcone knows is that the sorcerer is feared, and always in the shadows. Sidebar, as the fight scene has finished. As for our meta reading of this scene, it seems that this fight echoes the sentiment of most confrontations between them throughout the series, with minor variations in the pattern. Here's the whole package. Harry mistakenly blusters at Marcone, deeply insulting him, sometimes causing serious property damage, and sometimes in front of witnesses. Marcone responds, mystifyingly calm. Harry ferrets out and or confronts and or defeats a hidden enemy, their shared enemy. Then begins an old western standoff, as Marcone has sufficient power and reasons, uh, that's motive and opportunity, 
to annihilate Harry, but chooses not to respond with violent retribution, often helping Harry and subsequently continuing the Cold War between them. Because reasons. I mean, there are reasons, even logical ones from a certain point of view, but they don't outweigh the disrespect, in my opinion. I mean, if I were a heartless mob boss, code or no, I may have let Harry slide a time or two, but after this many false start showdowns and threats, Harry would be sleeping with the fishes by now. But I am not the godfather. I do a fan podcast, and we are all better off for that. Speaking of which, this scene has staggering structural similarity to the Harry Marcone scene at the end of Battleground Book 17. They match nearly beat for beat making it difficult for me to see if this scene could also be foreshadowing a final resolution at the end of the Big Ass Trilogy. Maybe it will, like every other permutation, follow the formula, mostly. Perhaps for once, Marcone decides not to take Harry's shit anymore. Or maybe Marcone's new associations lead him to do something un-Marcone-like, something which breaks his no-hurting-kids rule, something by which Harry cannot stand and do nothing. And this impasse will lead to the final Cold War step being abandoned. A couple of random thoughts and details that will most likely prove to be irrelevant, but might mirror future events. This may sound really insignificant, but Harry shows up to the varsity in a cab. Follow me here. Literally driven to the confrontation with Marcone, rather than getting there on his own. I wonder if he'll be metaphorically driven by an outside influence to take Marcone down in the end. Next, here Marcone was saved by his loyal lieutenant. At the end, Marcone will certainly not be alone or without allies, but he won't have Hendrix to take a bullet for him, and I doubt he'll retain guard. There will likely be a betrayal of Marcone, as Gimpy did. Perhaps it will be guard. Gimpy had a disabling injury, a trait the traitor could share. And finally, as Gimpy dies, Harry has a haunting moment of humanity with the man. The traitor, or other minor character death, in the Big Ass trilogy may be someone with whom Harry has an emotional connection. Please, Jim, please don't let it be guard. I, I like her. Or toot toot. Never toot toot. Very important that he be on the victorious team at the end. After all, someone needs to replace Harry as Winter Knight once he becomes either the new gatekeeper or the new Merlin. Or both. Yes, I know the knights are supposed to be mortal and serve for life. They'll figure out a workaround for both. That's what makes it such a gotcha moment. Debate! Thoughts! Comments! Yay! So, to wrap it all up, despite all Harry's effort, 16 chapters of being principled, working the case with all his legal, mundane, and magical capabilities, literally taking a beating, oh wait, no, two beatings, risking himself, sacrificing for others, Harry's still boned and running out of time. But next episode, the tables begin to turn. Arigato, dankeschön, and thank you all kindly for listening. Thank you to my supporters, without whom this project would not be possible. You know who you are. Thank you to my inspirations, those literary podcast giants on whose mighty shoulders I attempt to balance. And thanks to Jim Butcher, for creating such a thrilling and insightful series, up about which I simply cannot shut. The Never Never podcast is hosted on Podbean and available on other platforms, including Apple and Amazon.
Please follow, share, comment, like, tell me what you liked, what you didn't like, and what you'd like to see in the future. Contact me at theneverneverpodcast at gmail.com. Ooh, ooh, this is new. I have a Twitter thingy. Uh, follow me at neverneverpod. I've decided to try to remember to hashtag Dresden Files, my podcast-relevant posts. So I announce things for the channel, new episode drops, give updates on upcoming episodes, and complain about the lack of compassion and rule of law in the world today. So see you next time. Take care. <laughs>